Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was on a winter day in 1903 in the outer banks of North Carolina that two unknown brothers from Ohio changed the history of the world forever. These were the Wright brothers, who succeeded in taking their plane made of just wood and cloth, the Wright Flyer, and they turned it into the world's first ever engine-powered aircraft, the first ever engine-powered flight. Yet did the Wright brothers do enough to maintain their advantage, their supremacy, their place in the world of air power? I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And as I do every Wednesday, I've dug deep into the History Hit archive to pull out an episode that I know you're gonna love. This is with Gavin Mortimer, who explains to Dan Snow how the first flight, the flight by the Wright brothers, led them to spend more time in court trying to protect their patent and ground other aviators than they did in the workshop. This made them largely despised by their contemporaries and behind in the race to master the air. Now, before all of this, remember, you can contact us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. So many of you have, and you come up with amazing ideas for future episodes, and we want to hear from you. We want to hear the episodes that you want to hear. So do contact us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. But now here is historian Gavin Mortimer on the unlikely fate of the Wright brothers. Enjoy. The Wright brothers became interested in flying at a very young age. As children in Dayton, Ohio, apparently they loved a little sort of helicopter-like toy. It was powered by a rubber band. And they loved the mechanics of this toy. They took it apart, they put it back together several times. And one day, their dream was to build a flying machine big enough to hold both of them. They were independent thinkers. They were filled with kind of confidence of their own talent and they had an unshakable faith in the soundness of their judgment. And they've got that from their father, this sort of evangelical, very independent preacher, this minister. And like them, they had a determination to persevere in the face of disappointment and adversity. It's pretty tough being a kind of itinerant preacher in a non-established church. And these qualities made them great inventors. They were mavericks. They began with bicycles. That was the craze of the late 19th century. In 1892, the two brothers opened a bicycle repair and sale shop, and they began to build bikes in 1896. They started inventing straight away. They developed a self-oiling bicycle wheel hub, which actually I need because the chain on my bike is a shambles at the moment. So self-oiling sounds good to me. And they installed a number of 
like machine tools in the shops. They seized the means of production in that respect. The profits from this operation went straight into aeronautical experiments. They reinvested. Didn't take profit out of the company, though. More tax efficient that way as well, I learned. And working with metal, working with wood, trying to make lightweight, precise mechanisms was the ideal preparation for constructing flying machines. Now, there are very interesting accounts of a German glider pioneer, Otto Lilienthal, at the time. He was a pioneer in the 19th century. He was doing all sorts of experimentation in the 19th century. Perhaps inevitably, he died in a glider crash in August 1896. And the lads became determined to keep his legacy alive, really. By 1899, I love this, they'd exhausted every single book in their local library, and they wrote to the Smithsonian Institution for suggestions as to further reading. They knew that an aircraft like this would require wings because they generate lift. It's taking advantage of the difference in pressure underneath the wing and on top of the wing that enables planes to fly in the sky. Now, you need a propulsion system to move it through the air and create that pressure differential. And you also need a system to control the craft once it is flying. It's all very well building that paper aeroplane, but you need to drive it, you need to steer it, take it in the direction you want to go. They worked out they needed wings, as I said, but also it needed to be light enough to be driven by an internal combustion engine. They experimented with a small kind of biplane kite in Dayton in the summer of 1899. A biplane obviously has two wings running the whole of the width of the aircraft. Using that, they realised their kite could climb, it could dive, and it could bank right or left. And so with that, they decided to build their first full-scale glider. It's dangerous business, this, folks. In 1900, they travelled from Ohio to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and they began their full-size flight experiments. On the Oceanside dunes at Kitty Hawk, there were regular breezes, and importantly, there was a soft landing. The sandy soil was perfect for their experimentation. They started on tests, they moved up to gliders, and they both separately piloted gliders during the testing process. They used to take it in turns. In 1903, the brothers built an aeroplane. It was called the Wright Flyer One. They had wooden propellers that the men had designed and carved themselves. Beautiful things. It had a gasoline engine. Fuel was becoming lighter. You didn't have to take great big bricks of rock, coal anymore. You could use fuel, liquid fuel, gasoline, the new wonder fuel 20th century. What could possibly go wrong, fellas? Let's just burn loads of gas. It's going to be great. Anyway, seemed like a good idea at the time. And at 10.35, on the morning of the 17th of December 1903, Orville was at the controls. He lay down on the plane's wing surface and brought its engine to life in preparation of launching it and himself into history. His diary tells the story. When we got up, a wind of between 20 and 25 miles was blowing from the north. We got the machine out early and put out the signal for the men at the station. After running the engine and propellers a few minutes to get them in working order, I got on the machine at 10.35 for the first trial. The wind was blowing a little over 27 miles, according to the government ananometer at Kitty Hawk. On slipping the rope, the machine started increasing in speed to probably 7 or 8 miles. The machine lifted from the track just as it was entering on the fourth rail. Mr. Daniels took a picture just as it left the tracks. I found the control of the front rudder quite difficult on account of it being balanced too near to the center and thus had a tendency to turn itself when started. As a result, the machine would rise suddenly to about 10 feet and then as suddenly on turning the rudder dart for the ground. 
A sudden dart went out about 100 feet from the end of the tracks, ended the flight. Time, about 12 seconds. The lever for throwing off the engine was broken, and the skid under the rudder cracked. After repairs, at 20 minutes after 11 o'clock, Will made the second trial. At just 12 o'clock, Wilbur started on the fourth and last trip. The machine started off with its ups and downs as it had before, but by the time he had gone over three or four hundred feet, he had it under much better control and was traveling on a fairly even course. It proceeded in this manner till it reached a small hummock out about 800 feet from the starting ways, when it began its pitching again and suddenly darted into the ground. The front rudder frame was badly broken up, but the main frame suffered none at all. The distance over the ground was 852 feet and 59 seconds. He covered around 120 feet, that's just under 40 meters, flying through the air in 12 seconds. Wilbur flew over 50 meters and 12 seconds on his first attempt. Orville's second attempt saw him in the air for 15 seconds. On the fourth and final attempt of the day, Wilbur flew 259 meters in 59 seconds. The four flights were witnessed, don't worry everyone, five local citizens were there to confirm this happened. So for the first time in history, a heavier-than-air machine had demonstrated powered and sustained flight under the complete control of a pilot. The Wright brothers should have now been in a position to dominate this entire new industry, this entire new dimension that human beings had been launched into. But it didn't go quite as planned, as you'll hear after the break, when I'm talking to historian Gavin Mortimer. Hey everyone, you listen to History, we're just talking about the Wright brothers' first flight, the flight that changed the world. But things didn't quite go as planned after that. I'm here with Gavin Mortimer. Gavin, thank you very much for coming on the pod. A pleasure, Dan. Good to be with you. Is it me, or do we sometimes underestimate? We remember people as inventors and pioneers, but we then downplay their business acumen, that they were also entrepreneurs, showmen, often with quite pointy elbows. Well, absolutely. And this was a great flaw in the Wright brothers, is that they, they were inventors and they certainly were not entrepreneurs. And in the years after their Kitty Hawk flight in December 1903, they allowed themselves to be overtaken by rivals because they weren't visionaries. They didn't understand quite the potential of what they'd invented. Yeah, I'm always so interested. It's like those quotes from people who pioneered computers who said there may be a computer in every city by the year 2000. What do you think that they thought they were trying to do? Well, in a way, Dan, I think for the Wright brothers, it was a challenge. They wanted to be the first to fly a powered flight. And that was it. And that really was what it extended to. And that they were both engineers. And of course, that was the secret in a way of their success is that they approached the problem of flight from an engineering point of view, not a scientific point of view. Orville in particular was a great uh, bicycle engineer, the bicycle craze of the 1890s, particularly in the States. And then that began to peter out at the end of the 19th century. And so they looked to another challenge. And it was only in 1899 that they wrote to the Smithsonian Institute 
to say we're interested in jumping on the aviation bandwagon, if you like. Fiji, can you recommend some books for us? And so they recommended the books. It hadn't been that for years they've been like some mad genius uh, slaving away in his attic at the problem. They, they just sort of moved on from the bicycle. Oh, well, let's have a go at getting something into the air. Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. the news received it was very competitive at the time was it like the space race would become later were people waiting for every single was it clear that records were about to be broken so how did they handle that publicity initially no there wasn't much publicity and when you say the space race dan i think that's a very important aspect of this this was of course was at a time the turn of a 20th century when particularly in europe obviously you had germany france and um, britain empire tussling, if I can put it like that. America was very much coming to the fore. And there was a great deal of nationalism in this, in the race to be the first to get something up into the air. But again, as I said, they didn't really understand the possibilities, particularly from a military point of view. And this is something that I discuss in Chasing Icarus, that um, the battle, if you like, and the sudden realisation in 1910 that, wow, this is going to change the face of warfare. And the Wright brothers didn't understand that. And that wasn't their objective. As I said, their objective was simply to get 
something up into the air. I mean, Louis Blerio, when he flew across the Channel and absolutely terrified the Brits in 1909, he was an entrepreneur. He wanted to sell planes. He, he was quite switched on, wasn't he? Tell me about the Wright brothers after that first flight. As they say nowadays, how'd they monetize that invention? <laughs> well, they didn't, Dan. What's often forgotten is that after the initial success in December the 17th, 1903, the year that followed was an anticlimax. They were trying to evolve and develop their invention, and there was more failure than success. And it wasn't until uh, July 1905 that when they changed, they adapted the elevator, the forward part of the aeroplane, and they flew, oh, it was for about 39 minutes. That was when they also, one has to say, Dan, that there was a certain reluctance to monetize their invention initially because they didn't quite believe in it too. Yes, they got something up in the air for a brief period. And it's quite interesting that, funny enough, at first to really see the possibility, the First Nation was Great Britain. And they sent uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Capper over to the States in 1904. I think it's the um, St. Louis exhibition. And he approached the Wright brothers and said, listen, I'm here on behalf of the war office. We're interested in developing your machine, your invention. And the Wright brothers rebuffed him, saying, we're not ready to do business yet. Now, they did later, they approached the U.S. military, but the U.S. military would only get involved if the Wright brothers funded it. So it was they didn't monetize it because there was still a great deal of work to be done in it, which in 1905, they had this successful flight of 39 minutes. By which time, of course, you mentioned Blériot, the French were involved. And the French, of course, had been the biggest rivals to the States in inventing the aeroplane. And I think it was Gabriel Voisin, who just a few months, March 1904, so just a few months after the Wright brothers, he had a glider flight. And that really spurred on the French. And the French were certainly much more attuned to not just the military aspect, but also their monetizing their product, which is what they did. And by which time the Wright brothers had begun to see the rivalry, they didn't like it. They were very litigious. They came from a litigious family. Their father had waged a 10-year battle against the church. And so they then really, I suppose, channeled their energies as much into legal disputes as into developing their aeroplane. They must have made themselves very unpopular, just suing everybody and being very litigious. There's a great cartoon that appeared in 1910. There was a big aviation cup meeting in New York, which brought together the best flyers of the world, mainly British, French, uh, a couple of Germans and Americans. The meeting only took place after the organisers had gotten assurance from the Wright brothers that they wouldn't sue any of the foreign aviators. And a cartoon appeared in one of the New York papers, and it was of the Wright brothers standing on the ground, looking up at the sky, shaking their fists and shouting, get out of my air. And that was very much. They were mocked in the end. It was a bit sad because they weren't charismatic people, the Wright brothers. They were very earnest. They were very pious. And they were totally unprepared for the fame that came with their invention in every aspect. And it got to the point in around about 1910, which, as I write in the book, was really the seminal year for the development of the aeroplane, that they were being mocked as fuddy-duddies and just, I suppose, almost the Victorians in this new exciting age. 
How interesting. So their dream was that they would basically be able to patent heavier than they're flying. So they thought they should be the only people to fly yeah, planes. Yeah, absolutely. And, wow. and this is what set back American aviation and why the French just suddenly rushed ahead in those crucial years between 1910 and 1914, obviously the outbreak of the First World War. There's some extraordinary figures, Dan, of the, in 1910, the respective air strengths of Germany, they had 14 dirigibles and five aircraft. France had seven dirigibles and 29 aircraft. Britain had two dirigibles and two aircraft, and the United States had one dirigible and two aircraft. So that was the strength of the Air Force. And of course, again, it just shows you the extraordinary development of the aircraft. Within five, six years, you had the fighter aircraft, the Red Barons, the McManooks, and bombing aircraft that were going across quite crude bombing aircraft, just dropping a shell over the side of the aircraft. But nonetheless, this is the extraordinary strides that were made in those years. And America were left behind, really, because the Wright brothers, I should say just quickly, Dan, is their biggest rival, their biggest competitor was Glenn Curtis, a fellow American who produced some of the great aircraft in the interwar years. Uh, he was in a long-running legal battle with the Wright brothers. And all it did was it hindered the development of the American aviation industry. Speaking of dirigibles, I learned from you, I knew that Alcock and Brown, 1919, the first transatlantic flight, unbelievable story in its own right, but that was not where it all began. Tell me about the first attempt. This book, Chasing Icarus, that I wrote a few years ago, which I have to say was, I'm more a military historian, but it was a wonderful book to, particularly to research and to write, and it was about this 17-day period in October 1910, when the world still wasn't sure if it was going to be the dirigible or the aircraft. Now, that sounds completely mad to us now, but I first developed an interest in, in early flights, going to REF Hendon. I'm from that part of London, and as a young boy, standing underneath the old Sopworth camels and thinking to myself, my goodness, I would never have got in one of those things. And they were... Very, very brave explorers, these men, but they were sort of looked on as, as, well, not slightly wacky, completely wacky, anyone getting into those things. And the dirigible, just by its very nature, seemed more stable, seemed more solid. An American man, Walter Wellman, in 1909, he'd attempted to sell to the North Pole in a dirigible, which ended in disaster. So, and humiliation, he was widely ridiculed. So he thought to himself, right, I'll show them. I'm going to sell, become the first person to make a transatlantic flight. So it was in a, I think it was about 220 foot dirigible, the America with a crew of five or six, one of whom was an Englishman, the radio operator. And they set out from Atlantic City and they made about 400 miles before they ran out of gas, really. And they came down and they were very lucky because, well, a bit of luck, a bit of skill. They steered towards the Bermuda to America passenger mail ship that came twice a week, I think. And uh, it was quite a dramatic rescue. They were picked up early one morning and photographs appeared in the newspaper. But that really put an end to the idea that the dirigible, a week later, you had this extraordinary aviation meeting at New York where the hard points was a race round the Statue of Liberty and back. So going over Brooklyn, Manhattan, not a great distance, I think about 35 miles in total, but one million Americans lined the route. Every single conceivable vantage point was taken and they were just staring up 
there was a, a medical affliction called the airplane stare because people would crick their necks as they looked up. And to see only three aircraft took part in it, but it was a wondrous sight circling the uh, Statue of Liberty and coming back in 29 minutes and reaching speeds of 75 miles an hour. It was just unheard of. And so this was really the defining moment in aviation history when they realised the potential of the aircraft and the futility of a dirigible. Although everything new is old, the airships are coming back, apparently, we keep being <laughs> yeah. told, don't we? It's a very green way of moving around. Heavy yeah, air. of course, yeah. yeah. But some... Let's finish up, I guess, with the Wright brothers. So this revolution just takes place and there's aircraft being produced and there are thousands during the First World War and then civilian aircraft after the war. What role did the Wright brothers have in that? Did they die rich men? Tell me. Well, Wilbur died in 1912 of typhoid and his brother Orville and his sister Catherine blamed to a large degree Glenn Curtis for driving him to an early death, that he was worn out. He just spent all his energy on fighting these legal battles. Orville carried on, but really Wilbur, I suppose the best way of putting it, Dan, is that Wilbur was the intellectual force and Orville was the physical force. And without the brains, Orville, like so many great double acts or partnerships, when one goes, the other is left diminished. And that was certainly the case. And by the time, of course, they'd fought these legal battles, the First World War was upon us. The French had made huge strides. Blériot and uh, Leon Morin. I mean, you had the Dutchman uh, Fokker who worked for the Germans. And so the First World War really left the Wright brothers behind. And they did continue. Actually, ironically, they merged with Glenn Curtis, the Glenn Curtis Company, after the war. But one of the key weaknesses in the Wright brothers was their inability to see the potential for the monoplane. They believed that it was the biplane was the future and that the monoplane was fundamentally weak. Now, it did have its weaknesses. And in 1912, the French military actually put a ban on the monoplane because of a series of accidents. But in fact, it was a case of more testing. And because what would happen is it wasn't that the monoplane was inherently weak, but certainly the downward force when it dived, when it descended. It needed work in it, and that work came in, of course, perfect time in 1912, just before the war, so that these problems were ironed out. So really, they became relics, Dan, and that's what's so interesting about the Wright brothers, that one of the most famous inventions in the world, everyone, schoolgirl and schoolboy, knows the Wright brothers, and yet they didn't capitalise on their invention, and they actually quickly got left behind, and that's the tragedy of the way for the Wright brothers. Fascinating to compare them to like Thomas Edison or George Stevenson, his son, who so Edison obviously founded General Electric or helped found General Electric. Stevenson's made railways. And yet poor old Wright brothers never quite made that transition. No, never. They didn't. Can I just mention quickly, Dan, someone who's one of my historical heroes. We talk about, and he's the complete opposite of the Wright brothers, who, as I said, everyone knows. Now, there was an Englishman, Claude Graham White, who for a couple of years... He, in a way, he was the embodiment of a Belle Epoque. The Edwardian age, a very good-looking man, very dashing, a bit of a James Bond character. And he was one of the top aviators in 1910, and he flew in that Statue of Liberty race. The Wright brothers loathed him because he was everything they weren't. He was a bit of a dandy and very charismatic. Now, he wasn't a designer. He was a, an aviator, but he was a visionary. And he, in a series of interviews in 1910 and 1911, 
he outlined his vision of the aircraft. And he said, for example, the time will come when transatlantic aircraft will be as common as steamers are today, perhaps more so. And on the subject of its military potential, he actually said in one newspaper interview, I really don't like talking about it because I'm always laughed at. But people don't realize the importance of this branch of military service. It is enough to say that the airplane's field in military and naval work is unlimited. Eventually, the airplane will be the feature in every war. Guns and powerful bombs will be carried on them and the greatness of a modern battleship will be useless. I mean, just how prescient was that? And this is in 1910, 1911. When the British Navy was building a lot of big battleships, that's not a voice they wanted to hear. No, wow. absolutely. And there was a lot of, as I believe there is today, Dan, there was a great deal of animosity and rivalry between the Navy and the Air Force, particularly with the Navy, who exactly saw the threat and saw their funding taken away from them. <laughs> well, we're building big aircraft carriers today. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that debate. Yeah, that I don't want to destroy my mentions for the rest of the year. <laughs> Listen, man, that was great. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. What's the book called? Uh, the book is Chasing Icarus, the 17 days in 1910 that forever changed American aviation. Quite well, uh, a mouthful, but it also deals a lot with Britain and France and just generally the global aviation industry. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. Thank you, Dan. A pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.